Hello, and welcome to Spotlight, the art of the island. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. This evening, the oldest, to the best of my knowledge, amateur dramatic group on the island stage, a comeback. A fascinating book on what, for many, is a harrowing subject. And the debut novel by an island author. As always, do get in touch with any creative artistic endeavours you may be involved in, planning, hoping to create, or would really like to put in the spotlight. Be they poetic, visual, theatrical, musical, literary, mime, just email me, spotlight at manxradio.com, or if you prefer, Howard Kane at manxradio.com, Kane with an E. To start this evening, the Legion players have been well known in theatrical circles on the island for a long time. 90 years, to be exact, as this year sees their 90th anniversary. Of late, their name hasn't been heard as much as of yore, but they're still alive and kicking at 90 and have plans to celebrate their special year with a cracking play. More on that next week. To start with, though, I chatted with the woman at the centre of the Legion players, Steph Gray, to get a little bit about their history and background. Also spoke to well-known actress and long-time associate of the players, Sonia Cullen. We were formed in 1932, in February the 18th to be exact. And we were just looking, actually, just talking before we started recording this, and you brought along this wonderful selection of old cuttings and programmes and photographs going right back pretty much to day one. And my word, A, I tell you what, A, the number of people involved in it and the quality of those sets, fantastic going back. Absolutely. I mean, it was a real thing then to go to the theatre because it was, I kind of guess, the background of a social event in those places. You know, we didn't have the distractions that we have nowadays. And um, very much at the outset was to raise money for the Royal British Legion, which is why the gentleman that came back from the First World War, the Great War, wanted to actually do something. And obviously Journey's End had not long been written as a play. And so they decided to take over the Gaiety Theatre and apparently it was packed out for two full nights. Can you imagine? Absolutely, and got rave reviews, and um, from then they they set up the Legion Players. No women in it to begin with, though. It was only a gentleman's... Um, really? A gentleman-only club to start off? Just for a few years, and then Sonia and I have just been looking at the first <laughs> yeah. woman who was allowed to, to tread the board. or something. Yeah. She's 38, <laughs> and, and been going ever since then. And it's terrific, and like all societies go for a very long time, it goes through peaks and troughs, and you're looking back there, and clearly, as you say, particularly in, in earlier years, huge numbers of people involved... And then, as been often the case, and it's sometimes just different trends, isn't it? There's some numbers tail off, and it's been, and we all know, it's been getting harder and harder in the last 10, 20 years to actually stage amateur plays. Um, we've taken the approach that we do collaborative working. Um, as with every society, it's difficult to get people that do backstage stuff like the chairman, like the secretary. and So we just share the workload out, uh, where there's, there's a hardcore of us. Um, for want of a better word and we just go in and ask other people if they'll come and help us out doing productions and various other crazy things like murder mysteries and whatever yeah. <laughs> and yeah and it's bringing people in like yourself Sonia and again I think we both did, were in uh, Calendar Girls That's which is right. a wonderful thing yeah. and that did actually pack the theatre out it did yeah. and we raised a huge amount of money for charity and it was a very special event and a very special year yeah Great, great help. Great teamwork across all the societies. It was brilliant. It was great fun. It was excellent that. It was good fun to do and um at a pertinent time, as you were saying, Steph, being able to get back into the gaiety after the lockdown and everything, 
and uh, just welcoming people back into the theatre. It was fantastic. But do you think it's getting more difficult? Because, again, I was chatting to someone about this recently and you can't really, I suppose, stop the way tastes change. And it seems to me now it's almost a reverse that sort of 30, 40 years ago when uh, my brother first started doing things with, like, the Choral Union, trying to get any young men or young women to join the choral societies was like getting blood from a stone. The average age of all the choral societies was sort of mid-40s and 50s, and you just didn't get young people going in. Now, it's almost the exact opposite. All the young ones want to go in and do the big choral numbers and the big shows with the Tellurian, with the operatics, with the choral, with the other groups that are staged on these big all-singing, all-dancing shows, and they look brilliant. Getting people in to do smaller or the straight theatre, straight drama, whodunits, thrillers, comedies much much harder now it is but that's life is it not and i think we've had to adapt um as a legion now we tend not to go to the gaiety theater it needs the big productions um and equally we're very keen on taking theater to people maybe in an an environment they wouldn't normally come into a theater so we've done some talking heads in the athel room at peel uh, centenary and the laxey working men's club there and as you know we do some stuff on the train crazy stuff on the train um you know, you can do drama anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a theatre. But yeah, there's a great buzz in the musicals. Um, you know, and there's a lot of young people doing some brilliant drama in, in the groups, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, it's really grown over the last, um, I suppose, 20 years. Um, young people have had more opportunity, I think. Mm-hmm. And particularly from a young age. And um, and they love it. And a lot of the musicals, that, that they're doing modern musicals. And so... They're very, very different. You know, when I first joined, I first my first show was with the Choral Union in 1980. And um, they were still the musicals that were written in the golden era, really, you know, in the, in the 40s and the 50s, which were fabulous. But um, they weren't the ones that were being written in the 60s or 70s. But now... You know, they're right up to date, aren't they? So kids really want to be involved and young people, yeah. And what's there not to love about standing on the Gaiety Theatre as opposed to standing in a smaller theatre, let's be honest. It's diverse. You know, everything has to be diverse and you have to adapt. Um, We choose to do it in smaller theatres because that's where our plays are suited best. Um, It is the old bums on seats adage, I'm Mm. afraid, because there is the financial side of any play production that you have to do. but as I said, it's collaborative. You know, we, we all work together now. I think it's it's a great spirit of, of yes, working together. It's, to, it's, it's more fun, yeah. actually. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I think one of the things maybe what we're not doing very well is the technical side. Um, everybody likes to be on stage, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of um, technical Isn't stuff it? in terms of lights and sound and stage management. Lot, yeah. And maybe that's something that the, the older generations can actually start to maybe encourage some of those that actually don't aren't very keen on, on acting but actually want to do the techie side as well. And that's something we did talk about, I think, with, with Madfer at one point and we did a weekend training course. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, A, it's a hobby, but also it's about... Um, well, in terms of being on stage anyway, it's about life skills, isn't it? We've often mm. talked about the benefits of drama um, to use that, you know, as a very broad brushed expression uh, for confidence, for team working, for presentation skills. Um, and that, that that goes with you throughout your life, really. Those dealing with the nerve side of things. There's lots of reasons why we do it. Um, but yeah, I think maybe sometimes we, we avoid a bit of the technical side, which maybe we should maybe focus on a little bit more. I don't know. Different acting style, you think, needed for doing smaller venues? Again, I think we've all been on the Gaty stage, without a doubt. And equally, as you say, doing things like in the Athel Room, maybe things outdoors even, where you're, you can be literally face-to-face with the audience. Different style required? 
Yes, definitely. And it's, I think it's more challenging, actually, in a smaller venue where you can see the whites of people's eyes, you know. Intimate theatre is, is, yeah. is a lot harder. It's yeah. fun. It, it is, is fun. fun. Yeah. More from Steph and Sonia next week when we discover what they are planning for this 90th year of the Legion players. Quite an achievement. And, of course, 10 years older than the other drama group well-known on the island, the service players, who the mathematicians among you will have already worked out are celebrating their 80th anniversary year. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Now, electroconvulsive therapy is something most of us know very little about and, I would hazard, the very word strike fear into lots of people. The therapy has been used to treat various mental conditions such as schizophrenia for years, but even now exactly how it works is little understood. One woman who's had the treatment and has had the skill and courage to write about it in an attempt to destigmatize the therapy and mental health issues in general is Kay Rose Quayle, married to a Manxman and a Manx radio regular herself, albeit she does live stateside. Her book has the intriguing title, Look Left, Walk Green. And when I chatted to her down the line, I began by asking her to explain the title. Um, it comes from after I had um, electroconvulsive therapy, which you know normally you would call or commonly called shock therapy in 2012. And I had um, some very serious brain effects from that. Um, and for quite a while, I had uh, a lot of trouble with directions. And when I finally went back to work... Um, I had a hard time crossing the street, and so I would have to remind myself all the time to look to the left to see the cars and then to walk when the green was in front of me because symbols are also were hard, were very hard for me for, you know, just being able to tell that green means this and red means this. That was very confused for me for a long time, so that's what the title actually comes from. Now, as you say, it's after having ECT and having the treatment, as you say, coming back from having mental illness, not the easiest thing to, to write about. What did you? Was it something you felt inside you wanted to write the book or was it something that you sort of felt compelled to write the book, as it were? How did the actual writing process start off for you? Um, it, it was something that I felt compelled to do. Um, you know, the process itself, the actual going through the ECT, uh, you know, I've had profound memory loss around that time. I don't remember it at all. But when I was going through it, um, I kept very detailed diaries about the experience like daily until it was until I was not able to do so anymore. Um, and just with the frustration of of my family and husband, with the, with the you know just a lack of information over here, very little is said about it. Um, you know, very little is told to you about what side effects can be. Um, there's a lot of misinformation. And I felt just, you know, with, with watching the people around me really grapple with, you know, what do we do? Because like I said, I had very profound brain issues with it afterwards. Um, it just felt like, you know, the people that I had talked to that had gone through it before I did. And, and in the 10 years since this has happened, there's just no information. There's no support whatsoever. You know, people don't know what they're getting into. Sometimes they're coerced into it. That's, you know, kind of the normal over here. Um, and it just felt like it was kind of like a grassroots thing that, that needed to be done, that somebody needed to, to go through it point by point, say what it was like and what you can do to get through it. And, you know, if you do have effects like I did afterwards, how you can kind of get back to a, a working normal life. And so did you say you, you did find diaries because you were saying, obviously, there was this memory loss. So a lot of it wouldn't actually be there in, in your mind. Did, did you find, do you right. say, some notes to, which actually reminded you about the process and when you were actually going through it at the time? Yeah, I kept diaries throughout the whole hospitalization um, just because of, of the effects that I personally had. I had a very long hospitalization um, and I kept, 
you know, records of, you know, specifically what it felt like, what the procedure was, you know, what was going on afterwards. Um, so that I had actually, I was able to go back and, and look at this and have very detailed information then to do research on afterwards to see why these effects happened and what leads into these effects. So the book itself, as you say, on the one hand, very much aimed for people to let people know more about it, a subject which is not easy to get reliable information on, a subject a lot of people might shy away from altogether. But equally, thousands of people right. do actually have this treatment, so it can be a sort of a, a manual, I suppose, for people to give them guidance on with some accurate information of what it actually involves. From your own point of view, from the writing point of view, did, did you find that sort of cathartic for, for, for yourself? Um, in, in some ways, yes. In some ways, it was it was disturbing, and I think I sort of went through through some grief because um, you know there was a loss. It, it profoundly affected my life, and and in, in the book, I, I try as best as I can to kind of be to to present the, the positives and the negatives about it because it's a very controversial subject. It's very controversial within the mental health community, and I've had people since I wrote it say to me, "Well, it sounds like you're plugging for it," and that's not what I meant to do at all. Um, you know, some people have been wildly positively helped by this and some have been very you know badly affected by it i kind of had both (laughs) experiences at the same time um and so yeah i I do hope that it's kind of a manual um that's exactly what it kind of came out to be but yeah it it was difficult there were great great periods with it where i felt like i was helping other people and then there were other periods where i kind of realized what had happened to me and that was very difficult and that's the one, one of the few things I knew about it in the little I, I knew before looking at your book was this whole concept, as you say, that it has been around for quite a long time. It is still regarded as controversial and seen as, if you excuse the pun, yes, shocking by some people, the very, very mm-hmm. nature of it. Uh, and also, it wouldn't appear to always work. For some, there seemed to be absolute evidence that it works. In other cases, it doesn't. And there's been some bad side effects. And equally, as I understand it still, we don't really still, even now, understand how it works. Right. Which does make it, yeah, I suppose, still... that, that, and that is the sort of slightly, I, I suppose we're so used to now with science having all the answers, it's slightly worrying, I suppose, when you think, OK, we're still prepared to do it without fully understanding how the, the process works in the brain. Mm-hmm. Do you find that surprising still, that it still is actually done, or do you think... It, it's a good thing, or, or do you think at the end of the day, so long as, I suppose, so long as it is helping some people, you could argue, well, obviously, then it's it's worth trying. It's, I mean, it's a very, very personal decision, I think, and you're right. There's so much that is unknown about it, but when you look at other treatments, when you look at even just taking medication for just something like as bland as, uh, you know, high blood pressure, we all react to treatments differently. Um, we all have, you know, extremely individual chemistry, and you always have a, a body of people that's kind of like the average that either has a positive or negative effect. And then you have the people that fall out of that, um, you know, group of people that have these different side effects. So, I mean, I guess you could argue that for just about anything, but you have treatments, of course, for like something like cancer, where you know that when you're undergoing that treatment, you're, you know, destroying healthy tissue with, with cancerous tissue. And that's just, you know, that's just the course of the treatment. And yet people take that risk, um, you know, as, as calculated as they can with mental health, there's so much that's unknown and so many of the drug treatments have such wild side effects. Um, at this point in history, that ECT has come back around as an alternative to those side effects for people who cannot take medications and are still having like severe mental health issues. So that's kind of where it came back around and why it's still around. 
And you, you mentioned in the book and discussed this as well, the whole issue of, of mental health and attitudes towards it. Are we moving in the right direction, do you think, at all? Is, is it still something which is still widely taboo for so many people? They feel uneasy talking about it? I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Um, and, I can only, I, and I can hear through the radio, of course, that, that you're definitely moving in the right direction. Um, and on our side here in the U.S., we've kind of had the occasion where with COVID specifically, you know, the talking about mental health in general is, is becoming, you know, more the norm. It's becoming more that we can say the word mental health. We can say, you know, taking a mental health day or whatever. Um, but for the actual people who have mental illness, um, it doesn't seem to be doing them too, too much good. Like we're still at the point where we can't talk about mental illness itself. And the general conversation is, is definitely wonderful because it's making the general public more aware of what mental health is. The problem over here is that they still equate mental health with mental illness. And mental illness is what happens to your mental health when something is wrong. <laughs> um, and so the, the mental illness part is still kind of still has that wide gulf of, of taboo. Author and artist Kay Rose Quayle talking to me from her home in America. We had a fascinating and wide-ranging chat. We might come back to some of it in future spotlights. Her book again is called Look Left Walk Green. I'm sure you'll find it online. From one author to another, a little closer to home this time, Joanne Clegg, a familiar name to many through her journalistic work, both in print and on local television. She's now turned her talents to writing, and her debut novel has just been published. It's called The Ragged Valley, and is said to be the first of three, as Joanne explains. I'd always wanted to write a novel, like most people, I think. Everyone's got a book in them, haven't they? Um, so they say. And, um, yeah, I got to the age of 50 and thought, it's really now or never. Um, so after 30 years in local journalism, I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go, give it a shot. And did you know what you were going to write? I did, and the first novel is actually sitting in a drawer under my desk, and I now call that my practice novel. Um, <laughs> but what I did was I um, I wanted to write historical fiction, and I wanted to write something about my grandparents' lives as they grew up in working-class Sheffield. Um, they worked in the steel industry. They were both file cutters. So I went over to Sheffield to do a bit of research, and that's where I discovered, really, the, the story of the, the Great Sheffield Flood, which I'd never heard of. And it it just immediately gripped me. Um, I, I was born and raised in Sheffield. I knew nothing about this flood of 1864, which killed 250 people. Uh, it was a burst dam and it raced through the valley. And I started thinking about the people who lived on that valley, uh, again, most of whom would be working class people working in the mills and the factories. Um, and yeah, so that kind of really got me started. I, I already had actually the first novel out on sub to agents. So I was on the uh, famous slush pile <laughs> um, <laughs> with that one. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just have a go at writing something based around um, that 1864 disaster. And this is the debut novel. I confess it's, it's uh, a story I'd not heard of before the, the great Sheffield flood. And it's excellent, obviously, to base it. So the basis, the story is written round. Obviously, the story itself, I assume, is fabricated and the characters, but the actual background history is accurate. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, it's yes, it was the, the backdrop, really, for 
the the story that that I've written about about two young people uh, from different sides of the tracks, different classes. Um, and there is one character in there who isn't fictional, uh, although obviously I've fictionalised him, um, and he's called John Gunson, and he was the engineer who built the dam, and it was his life's work that he actually, on the, on the night itself, witnessed crumbling away and just releasing all those millions of gallons of water onto the unsuspecting people beneath. This happened just before midnight, so of course the people who weren't working in factories were all in bed, um, so I've included him in the novel. Um, again, I found him quite a fascinating character. Now, what about getting it actually published? Because it's one thing to have the idea and, and one thing to actually get the words down on paper or in, mm. into your laptop, whatever the case may be. Famously difficult to actually get anything these days into print. Yes, it is. And I did spend a long time on the slush pile. I, I started doing this, like I said, five years ago now. Um, and the first novel probably went out about three years ago. So you submit to literary agents and you hope that one of them is actually going to spot it on their slush pile and like it and take you on. Um, and then they submit to publishing houses. So that's another round of, of waiting. So, yeah, it's a long game. <laughs> you need patience. New patience, thick skin, confidence. I d yeah, I don't know about confidence. Um, I do have imposter syndrome. I'm convinced that any any good review I have, people are just being kind, and anything that's not quite so good, that's got to be the truth. Um, it's more of a thick skin, actually, which I think 30 years in journalism gave me. I've helped one too. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so once you've got there, then, so is this one? I think you were saying. So this is there's going to be more to follow this one. Yes, I've been contracted by Canelo to write three books. So it's a series so it's all set in the 1860s and 1870s around working class characters in Sheffield um, so book two is with my editor now and I'm now working on book three while launching my debut so yeah it's a busy time. It is a busy time. What about your writing process because again you speak to different people how they write have you got a, a set way of writing some people i know write in the dead of night some people get up first thing in the morning and do it before going out other people have a particular place they go to etc have you got a particular process you follow for your writing Oof, that's an interesting question and i don't know if it's one i can answer um i, I tend to just try to fit it in whenever I can. I tend to, I'm, I'm best first thing in the morning. So I'm an early riser. I'm up with um, the kids and so on, uh, walking the dogs. So yeah, so I'll, I'll try and do a couple of hours in the morning, um, maybe a couple of hours in the evening. And then um, I research as I write. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to do it, but <laughs> that's that's how I, how I work. Um, so uh, yeah, I suppose if, that's as much of a process as I've got, really. Yeah. Well, that's a if it works for you, <laughs> who's to, who's to knock it? No, I really, really enjoy writing. You know what I write. I just really, really enjoy it. Yeah. So I'm, what I'm hoping is that once I've done this series of historical fiction, I might win another publishing deal to write some more. I've got lots of ideas. I'm taking the characters forward through time. So I've gone from 1864 with with the debut, and the third book is set seven years later featuring some of the same characters. But each each novel also obviously has to be a complete standalone novel. You don't have to read the first one to read the second. And again, Joanne's first novel is called The Ragged Valley. It's widely available from your favourite, hopefully, local bookseller. But if you want a signed copy, 
get yourself to the Bridge Bookshop in Ramsey on Saturday the 25th of June when Joanne will be doing a book signing. That's about it for this week. Don't forget, if you want to hear anything again, go to manxradio.com and download the Spotlight podcast. Listen at your leisure. Drop me a line with any artistic thoughts or ideas. Stay creative, mind the bikes, and I'll see you next week. Cheerio.